Well, a few years ago, I gave a men's breakfast talk on George Mueller. George Mueller was a pastor in England in the 1800s who was known for building and running five large orphanages, which um, cared for about 10,000 orphans over the course of uh, his time there. He also raised millions of dollars for the orphanages, supporting missionaries. He funded schools. He even printed Bibles and all their, uh, their textbooks and training materials. But what he's best known for is the fact that he did all of that without asking a single person or organization for money. But rather, he only ever asked God in prayer. In fact, he wrote the primary object was that God might be magnified and that only by prayer and faith, without anyone being asked, it might be seen that God is faithful and still hears our prayers. So Mueller prayed often, daily, often for hours at a time. But relying on God's timing wasn't always easy. He said that they were brought low, uh, so low that they didn't even have enough money to buy bread when the last loaf was on the table. But despite that, they never sat down to a meal without nourishing food. He said supplies came in daily, rarely more than enough for a day or two, but never too little. And he was always grateful to see the hand of God stretched out on our behalf in the hour of our need and in answer to our prayers. Now, George Mueller was possibly one of the most faithful and prayerful people in all of history. And he understood the great privilege that we have in being able to talk to God in prayer. And while he was discouraged by the lack of prayer in, the, in others, he didn't want to guilt them into praying more. Instead, he tried to show them by his example of how great God is. And his faith has had a lasting impact on many people, not the least of which is me. I've been greatly influenced and encouraged to pray more. And so this morning, I'd like to take a look at biblical prayer and try to encourage you. I think I can safely say that no one in this room, including me, has a prayer life like George Mueller. So my purpose is not to guilt you into praying more, but to move us all forward in our understanding of this privilege so that we might each resolve to pray and to grow in prayer. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, which is on page 811 of your uh, Bibles there in the chairs in front of you. As you know, we've been preaching through Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. And last month, Josh preached on this passage that contains the Lord's Prayer, but he didn't really have time to unpack it. So this morning, we're going to take a a deeper look and see how we can grow in prayer. If you also have my outline, which is in your bulletin, you'll see that we're going to look at, uh, number one, why we pray, two, how do we pray, and three, what do we pray for, and in that rare fourth sermon point, how do we get better at praying? So let's start with reading this passage in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 5. This is Jesus talking, and he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret." 
and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So as you know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is explaining how he came to fulfill the law of Moses and to correct the faulty interpretations and applications of the religious leaders of that time. I think Josh did a great job of explaining how Jesus is trying to get us to understand that following God is more than just outward appearance, right? More than just religiosity. It's deeply associated with our motivation, our attitude, with our hearts. It's point number one of my outline, the motivation of why we pray. So in, in verse five, we see that Jesus is warning us about praying just so others would see us doing it. And he uses the illustration of how hypocrites pray to show us that if our goal in prayer is just to be looked up to by others, right? just to be known for our eloquent speech or our commanding voice, then at the most, that's exactly what you'll get, right? Recognition, admiration, but no more. And now, don't get me wrong, Jesus isn't condemning all public prayer, but rather he's addressing our own internal motivation for prayer. And he addresses the motivation again in verse 7 when he says, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And I think it's interesting to note here that, these, uh, that he's talking about Gentiles praying, right? That's unbelievers, people who want the appearance of being religious without the actual relationship or knowing God. And why do they pray? Well, they just string together empty phrases in an attempt to get something from God, right? Thinking that if they say enough words that then God will just give them what they want. Prayer is not a magic formula to bend God's will to your own, right? He's not a, a genie in a bottle whom you can ask for anything you want. Rather, Jesus tells us that God, our Father, already knows what we need. So that why then do we pray? Well, I think first we pray, A, to communicate with God, right? We can see here from Jesus' wording that he assumes that Christians will have a desire to talk to God and will be doing it regularly, See how three times he uses the phrase, when you pray. He doesn't use if you pray. Right? So where does this desire come from? Well, I think Tim Keller is helpful in his book called Prayer when he defines prayer as as a personal communicative response to the knowledge of God. And I like that definition because it shows that prayer is first a response to God And that second, it hinges on our knowledge of God. So just think for me uh, for a moment about the very basis of our relationship for God. 
right? It's based on his initiative. He came to rescue us. He came while we were still sinners and while we were in active rebellion against him. And so we have that same pattern here with prayer, which makes sense because prayer is just a verbal part of the relationship. Right? It's not surprising if you think about how we learn to talk right, when we're kids. Um, when my kids were young, I ended up, I can remember talking to them and you know, pointing to myself and saying, you know, Daddy, Daddy, just repeating it endlessly over, trying to get them to say the words. And I think we've all done that. And although there might be some competition trying to get them to say Daddy before they say Mommy, but the point is that we're talking about a response to our parents. Right? We learned it talk as a response to our parents talking to us. And it's the same thing with God, right? Our prayers are a response to see how we see, uh, to how we see God speaking in our lives, right? It's a response to the work that he's done in providing for us or, or the work that he's doing in molding us and shaping us. But most literally and most directly, we respond to God's spoken words in the Bible, Right? No matter how much that you study someone's work or how much time you spend with somebody, you'll never truly understand them unless you speak to them. Right? Unless they tell you what their hopes are, what their dreams and their, their feelings. And, and so we can best know God through his revealed words to us in the Bible. Right? And even more so in the revelation of his son, Jesus. Right? God in the flesh who is called the word of God. So our prayers are a response to God, but, but more importantly, they're a response in proportion to our knowledge of him. Right, I think we're all given this instinct to reach out for help based on, a, on our sense of God that he's put into us, right? Built, made in the image of God. And we can see that in people's reactions to tragedies. Like think about 9-11 when, when all sorts of unbelievers come together to pray. But this instinct to pray takes on another level when we're born again by the Spirit through faith in Christ. As our knowledge of God increases and we come to understand who God is and, and what he's done for us, right? that he's forgiven us our sins, that he's adopted us as heirs of righteousness, it's then that we start to converse with him as our loving and heavenly Father. Listen how Tim Keller sums this up. What Christians know about God comes through the work of scriptures and its main message, the gospel. In the Bible, which is God's living word, we can hear God speaking to us and then we respond in prayer. Although we shouldn't really call this simply a response. Right? Through the word and the spirit, prayer becomes answering God. It's a full conversation. So prayer is not meant to be a chore it's not just meant to be some task that we, you know, do to appease this disinterested ruler. It's meant to be an enjoyable conversation between a father and a son. And when we approach prayer with that kind of motivation, Jesus says in verse 6 that we'll be rewarded. And so, how does he reward us? Well, the greatest reward that we have is that he increases our faith and knowledge and trust in him. Right? As he reveals himself to us in the pages of the Bible through the Holy Spirit, we get a better understanding of God's character. And as we understand that he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-wise, 
then we start to share with him our thoughts and our fears and our feelings. And then we see him working in and through our lives, right? He gives us power over sin by helping us to grow in righteousness and bringing us peace from anxiety, right? When we see those things, then our trust in him grows. And we learn that what he wants is best for us and that he has the power to bring it about. That's what creates a relationship, right? Shared time together, shared interests, shared desires, shared fears, right? All through this two-way conversation, right? Reading God's word and prayer. Now, this process isn't always instantaneous. In fact, we can often think that we're praying and feel like our words are just, you know, bouncing off the ceiling, but that's not the case, right? Our prayers are effective. It's point C. And there's lots of evidence to that in the Bible. First and foremost are the the promises of God, right? He tells us it's effective. For example, Luke 11, right? Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How amazing is that, right? Jesus isn't talking about our wants. He's talking about our needs, right? Remember the promises from last week about giving us food and clothing and shelter. And of course, he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Prayer is effective. If you ask, it will be given to you. And second, we've got all the examples of effective prayers in the Bible. Just think of Abraham's interceding for Sodom. Hannah praying for and getting her son Samuel, right? Or or, or Elijah praying for fire from heaven in his contest with the prophets of Baal. And then the apostles praying for boldness as they spread the gospel. Right? God isn't a divine butler or just a genie in the bottle, but he is God and he is all-powerful. And so we pray and we trust that he will act in his perfect perfect will and his timing. So now we understand why we should be praying. The the second question I ask in your outline is point two, how should we pray? Well, one thing Jesus addresses is location, right? In verse six, he just says, go into your room to pray, which I think it's great how the Bible just gives you very simple and clear help, right? Practical advice. Going to a quiet place helps us keep our motivation pure and allows us to be free to, to open up our hearts to make mistakes, to stumble over words, and just to be free from distraction. And I think, can't you relate to this? I mean, I know when I'm praying and and I overhear a conversation in the other room or or my text, you know, to get a text and my cell phone goes off, then it's just, you know, I'm distracted. It's like squirrel. Like I just, that's it. I can't really get back into what I'm doing. Uh, And so going into a room or to a closet is just helpful, right? Going without your phone, it just makes good practical sense. Let me just pause and clarify that Jesus is not saying that we should never pray with others, right? The Lord's Prayer clearly is meant to be a corporate prayer because he uses 
uh, words like our and us, our Father, our daily bread, our debts, lead us, deliver us, right? And there's lots of other biblical commands and examples that teach us to pray with others and in public. But for regular, deep conversation with God, then we should go into an undistracted and quiet place to pray. And next, look at how Jesus tells us to address our prayers to our Father, right? means to consider ourselves as the children of God. I think we use this language so much that we forget the importance of it, right? We're afforded the privilege of addressing God, God who is the infinite, holy creator of the universe. We get to address him as our Father. And this idea speaks to our relationship as adopted heirs, Right? and demonstrates the familiarity that we have with God. And so as sons and daughters of God, we can go to the Father with confidence that he hears us and that he loves us. Right? Just think of how much you love it when your kids come to you to talk right? and they pour their hearts out to you. That's the kind of relationship we have with God. And we can also pray, see confidently because of the work that Jesus has done on the cross. Right? He's ushered in this kingdom of God on earth. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Right? It reminds us that the kingdom of God is partly present and partly future. Right? It's, it's present here because Jesus has freed us from the bondage of sin. And he's empowered us with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And second, in the future, he's secured a place for us in heaven. And that we can look forward to a glorious future with him. I mean, what more do you need to give you confidence, right? You don't know how to pray? Well, then just know that as believers in Christ, you have God's own spirit in you right now to intercede for you. Are you anxious about the future? Well, God assures you, right? You've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we can pray with confidence and boldness, Lord, let your kingdom come. But we also pray, Lord, let your will be done. Right? That's a demonstration D of humility. So we're not just trying to get things for our own benefit or our own profit. Instead, we're putting others first. We're putting God's people's needs before our own. And when we do that, John 5.14 assures us that This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So how do we pray according to the will of God? Well, this is where knowing your Bible or praying after reading your Bible are so helpful. Right? Because God's will is obvious in the Bible, in his clear commands, and his direct declarations. And I know everything's not that easy, but, but the more that we know our Bible and the more that we can apply it to our lives, the better we can get at recognizing God's will. And during that process of learning, if we don't know what we're doing, we just pray for more understanding or more patience or a change of heart maybe. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology is helpful here when he says, the regular reading and memorization of Scripture cultivated over many years of a Christian's life will increase the depth and the power and the wisdom of his or her prayers. 
Jesus encourages us to have his words within us as we pray. For he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. And just recognize also that we can't coerce God or force his hand. And so logically, it means that sometimes his answer might be no. But it's not that he doesn't hear us when we pray, but it's just that he knows what's best for us, right? Better than we even know what we need for ourselves or want for ourselves. And so lastly, why should we pray? Or sorry, when should we pray? And that's point E. We should pray frequently, right? By using the phrase, give us this day our daily bread, Jesus makes it clear that we are to come to God at least daily, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 takes this idea even further and admonishes us to pray without ceasing. Now this obviously doesn't mean that we're to spend our entire lives on our knees in prayer, but it does, however, emphasize the need to be constantly looking to God for direction, right? Or, looking, or, or thinking of him in praise. We should go through our days with a, a spirit of prayer, willing to share with God our thoughts and our joys and our struggles, and acknowledging him as the source of all good things. Now let me just clarify that this spirit of prayer doesn't really eliminate the need for quiet, deliberate communication with God. I mean, if you just think about your own spouse, maybe when you're apart, right? You love them and they're constantly on your mind. I mean, not to the point of distraction from whatever you're doing, but, but you're often thinking of where they are or what they're doing or, or maybe something that you hear reminds them of you. Right? And you're looking forward to seeing them again, of telling them where you're about your day, of, of hearing what their day was like. Right? That's kind of this spirit of communication. Right? But, but none of that's actually communicated to your spouse unless you actually talk to them. And Jesus says the same thing with prayer. Right? Despite the fact that God is all-knowing and he's aware of, of what's going on, everything that happened to you during the day, he still expects and commands you to go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father. There's still this need for a dedicated time and a dedicated place to be with God. And just like you find and long for time with your spouse, right? we should find and long for time with God. So Jesus has answered the question why we should pray, number one, and how we should pray, number two. But he also helps us think through, number three, what we should pray. Right, which I think is just great. There's so much packed in to the Lord's prayer here. You start digging into it. Look at, look at first how he starts with physical needs, daily bread. Right? It's just like what it sounds like. It's just this, the, that we need to sustain, what he will give us what we need to sustain us physically on a daily basis. Right? He, Jesus is telling us that God's not so big and not so distant that he doesn't care about all of our needs, even, even the mundane daily stuff. In fact, he goes out of his way to assure us that God wants us to trust him for that kind of stuff. And in fact, just a few verses after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us not to be anxious about food or clothing or drink, but to trust God to supply all of our needs. And you might think that that you know, contradicts his earlier statement in verse 8 that God knows that what we need before we even ask, right? And if that's the case, then, then why do we even bother praying for anything? Well, one of the reasons is because he commands us to. Right? But, but why would he command us to do that? Because it reminds us that we bring nothing to the table. That he ultimately provides everything that we have. 
Right? We, we may think that we grow food, that, that we do, but all we really do is just plant a seed. Right? We have to rely on God to make it grow. And then who sends the sunshine and the rain? Right? God does. Or, or we may think that our hard work you know, earns us the money that we get to buy food. But, but who gave us the knowledge and the skills, right? the opportunities that we have to work? God did. And we so often overlook all that God does and we think about how smart and resourceful we are. But Jesus is reminding us here in the Lord's Prayer that we need to daily take stock of what God does for us and let, the rea- let that reality shape our lives. So we should be praying for physical needs. But he goes on to show us that we also need to pray daily for our spiritual needs, right? B in our outline. Right? He says, forgive us our debts when we, uh, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Right? He's not talking here about the forgiveness that we got when we first believed and were justified by faith. But just like our, our physical bodies need daily nourishment, so too our spiritual relationship with God needs a daily restoration by confessing our sins and asking for forgiveness. In fact, the importance of restored relationships is reiterated just after the Lord's Prayer in verses 14 and 15. Right? Jesus tells us that we must understand how crucial forgiveness is in restoring relationships. Right? We can't just continue to nurse grudges or cherish bitterness or wish harm on other people right? and think that we're just fine. Uh, these are obviously sinful attitudes which affect relationships with others, but it also affects our relationship with God, which is why he's so clear and repeats this warning twice. Right? He will only forgive us our sins if we recognize them and repent of them and ask for forgiveness. And, all this, and although I said this repeated need for forgiveness is not talking about the original justification of our faith, it is that initial forgiveness that gives us the power to forgive others. Right? He says that it's because we were first forgiven by God that we can then go and forgive others. Let me just pause here for a minute, right? Because our failure to embrace these two simple prayer requests, right? Praying for our daily physical needs and our daily spiritual needs, I think just highlights how prideful we are. Right, with our physical needs, we think that we, we've got it all figured out. We've got food on the table. We've got money in the bank. We've got a warm house. Right? And our spiritual needs, we think, well, I haven't done anything too bad or, or I'm not at least as bad as that guy over there. Right? Or, or I'm not going to uh, ask for forgiveness until they do. Right? We, we take pride in our own ability to get things done or our own self-righteousness. And when we think like that, what do we need to go to God in prayer for? Right? It's not until something really bad happens that we can't control that then we end up turning to God in prayer. So, so our prayer life is an indication of our humility, right? our dependence on God, and how willing we are to acknowledge that all good things come from him and that he gives us what's best for us. Jesus definitely warns us about this prideful attitude, right? Think of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Let me just read it for you, right? Luke 18, 11 says, the, the Pharisee standing by himself, so this is different than the, in the, the prayer we just read where they're on the street corner, right? So he's not looking for the praise of man like those hypocrites did, but he prayed like this. 
God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, here's the reality check. Because according to Jesus, one of these men went to his house justified and the other didn't. Right? Which means one gets to enter into full enjoyment of life in the presence of God forever. To live in God's heavenly city, to have fellowship with all of God's people, and to be free from pain and sorrow and suffering eternally. And the other lives in eternal punishment, in a place of torment and of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right? One of these men represents a humble heart that understands the privilege of prayer and relies on God daily for his physical and spiritual needs. And the other represents self-righteous, unbelieving, and prideful heart. Right? Both are praying here, but it's their content that reveals their hearts. And so the question is this morning, which one of these do you represent? Right? Which one of these do you like? I urge you just to think about that carefully. But we can do that without despairing as well. Right? Because the reality is clear that God is holy and he demands perfection. And we're sinful and we'll never attain it on our own. But God sent his son Jesus right, to take our punishment and then to give us his righteousness. And so the remedy is simple and it's right here in this passage. Right? Repent. Beat your heart. Beat on your breast right, as an acknowledgement of your sin before God. And pray for forgiveness. Ask God for his mercy and accept his grace. And don't let your pride be your downfall. So back to what we should pray for. Right? Jesus finishes up his prayer here with a final appeal that we wouldn't be overcome in this battle with sin. Right? But rather that we should pray that we're kept out of situations that will lead us into temptation and ultimately to sin. I've called this point, uh, I've called this point C, help and guidance, right? Because without help and guidance from God in every little day-to-day -day detail, our lives would be a total mess, right? We should ask God to help us know the kind of situations where we're likely to be tempted and to guide us away from them. And there's still our personal responsibility in this as well, right? When God makes us aware of temptation, we still have to have the discipline to avoid it. But we do that alongside of God's sovereign ability to direct our paths, to give us strength. And we pray that we don't face temptation unnecessarily. Now, I think we just need to be clear here that God is not the one who tempts us. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So it's our own sinful desires that cause us to be tempted and ultimately to sin. 
Right? It's our own willingness to flirt with sin, right? To unsuccessfully try to walk that razor edge of temptation so that we can get that shortcut to some satisfaction. That's what leads to sin. And Satan loves to give us false confidence in our abilities and to twist God's words in order to get us to sin, right? Like, did God actually say that, as he said in the Garden of Eden? So by praying that God would lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil, we're praying that God would keep us from temptation by giving us strength of character to do our part. And where we're blind to temptation and sin and Satan's plans, we pray that God would give us the strength of character to trust his promises and to protect us. And this just reminds me again of uh, Jesus' opening in this prayer because it's the way that I think of uh, think as a father for my children, right, right? I want them to have a strength of character, and so I prioritize time to talk with them, right, to see how they're doing. And I work with them at identifying areas of weakness in their own lives, coming up with strategies for them to avoid sin. And all the t- while I'm doing that, I'm, I'm trying to create this safe environment where they can grow up, right, without having to deal with a lot of the world's sinfulness and trying to remove temptation from them. But sometimes the only way that they can recognize where they need help is for them to struggle first and on their own. And I don't do a good job at this all the time, but, but that's my intent. And, and so if I'm willing to do that for my kids, right, if we're willing to do that for our kids, how much more is God willing to do that for us? And he's going to do so much better at it too, right? He's our perfect, loving, heavenly father. So I hope I've been able to convince you of what a privilege that we have with prayer, right, as well as some of its practical effects. And so to close, I'd like to just encourage you with uh, point four, just like how do we get better at this, right? Just three simple ideas. Just plan your prayer time, let the Bible direct your prayer, and then change your attitude towards prayer and cherishing it. So let's just look first at planning to pray. Because I think this is the biggest reason why most of us don't pray. It's just that we don't prioritize prayer in our daily schedule. Right? We have good intentions of praying, but we never make the first step of actually putting aside a specific time. Right? You walk by your prayer room, but you never actually stop and go into it and shut the door and pray. And I'm the same way. Right? I'm so very task-oriented that as soon as the kids leave in the morning and I just want to get my list out and start checking things off, Sometimes halfway through the morning, I'll say, oh, I'll just, you know, pray at lunchtime. And, of course, then I forget about it then, too, and it just doesn't happen. But I once watched this TED Talk by a time management expert who explained there's, there's 168 hours in a week. And so if you sleep eight hours a day, which would be great, and work 40 hours a week, which would also be great, you know, then you still have uh, 72 hours left. So even if you assume you, you know, work 60 hours a week, it's still 50 hours, 52 hours of discretionary time. So not having time to do something is more about not setting aside the time to do it than it is really actual lack of hours of doing something, right? So they studied how successful people use their time, and she came to this conclusion that the key to time management is to understand that every minute that you have to spend is your choice. So it's not that we don't have time to pray. It's just that we don't pray because we don't make it a priority. Right? I don't have time just means it's not a priority. I mean, you can say I don't have time to vacuum my blinds, but if I offered you $1,000 to do it, I'll bet you'd find time. So 
right? Where you have the incentive and desire, you can find time to do things. So I think that if you want to pray more, then I think we need to actually look at the week ahead and put prayer into our schedule first to make it a priority. And so wherever you're spending time in prayer, I just challenge you to try to do better, to grow still more. Right? Maybe you just need to start by adding 10 minutes a day to your schedule of prayer time. Or maybe adding uh, 10 minutes to the time you already have. Or maybe you need to, a timer to actually spend the 10 minutes that you promised that you'd you know, planned to spend last time you resolved to pray. But just doing whatever it takes to grow in prayer. Maybe that sounds like too much, right? 10 minutes. Because maybe when you sit down to pray, you pray for everything that you can possibly think of and then you look at your watch and you realize, oh, it's only been two minutes, right? I can identify with that. And I think it's just the way we are sometimes. But I think this, this idea of this feeling of emptiness, of, of dryness when we pray can be discouraging. But I think it also can be just a great reminder of who we are and what we bring to the all-powerful, all-holy creator and sustainer of the universe, right? Which is nothing, right? We have nothing to bring to him. We have nothing to offer. We're, we're totally and utterly dependent on him. And so if you have that kind of attitude, that attitude of reverence when we pray, right, that can be a great way to actually start prayers. But I think there's also another aspect of just the discipline of prayer. I think that we just need to train ourselves to pray more. Right, if you wanted to run a 5K and you went out, you wouldn't just go the first day and run 5K without ever starting. Right? You, you have to plan and train for it. So first you'd walk a lot and maybe run a little bit and then you'd get better and you'd run more and walk less and eventually you can run 1K and then 2K and you, know, you work up to your goals slowly. And so why don't we do the same thing with prayer? Right? Don't set this unrealistic goal of praying for an hour a day. Right? You don't have the stamina to achieve that. So just start with a few minutes a day. And then as you get used to praying, as you get used to opening up God, as you get, you know, the words and the ideas come easier, then prayer gets easier. And I think J.R. Packer wrote a book on prayer whose title I think captures this idea really well. He said, it's called Finding Our Way Through Duty to Delight. So I think the delight of a rich and rewarding relationship with God is worth the hard work and the discipline that it takes to get there. So I think we should plan prayer time. But B, I think we should also let the Bible direct us in our prayers. Right? One of the best ways to improve your prayer life is just to combine it with reading God's word. We've just seen how prayer is a response to God speaking to us. So the better you to get better at praying, we also need to get better about reading our Bibles. Right? Even George Mueller, this prayer giant, said that he suffered much from wandering of mind for the first 10 minutes or quarter of an hour or even half an hour when he just jumped straight into prayer. Right? I think that's discipline, just sticking with it for that long, even when you're wandering of mind. But he eventually switched his method and he concentrated first on reading his Bible and then meditate, and meditating on a passage to obtain food for his soul. And he wrote this wonderful little track called Soul Nourishment First. And in it he says... After a few minutes of reading my Bible, my soul is led to confession or to thanksgiving or to intercession or to supplication so that even though, I don't, even though I didn't intend to pray but to meditate, it turned almost immediately more or less into a prayer. 
for myself or for others as the word may lead to it, but still continually keeping before me that food for my soul, which is the object of my meditation. The result of this is that my inner man almost invariably is nourished and strengthened. And so by breakfast time, I am in a peaceful, if not happy, state of heart. And often the Lord is pleased to communicate to me something which later on I have found to become food for other believers, even though that was not my original intention. So we've been given this great, unbelievable privilege of knowing the very words of our holy living God. And we should savor them and, and meditate on them and let them lead us straight to prayer. So plan your prayer, A, B, let your Bible reading direct your prayers, and C, we also need to change our attitudes right towards prayer, and we need to cherish prayer. We need to stop thinking of prayer as just another duty that we fail at and start cherishing it as the privilege it is, right? As the most uh, precious time that we have in our schedule where we get to cultivate our relationship with God. Right? Just think of how you look forward to being with your spouse or your best friends. Right? You love to be with them because they know you. Right? They know your strengths, but they know your failings too, and yet they still want to be around you and hang out with you. Right? You've got all sorts of shared interests. You've got shared memories. And none of this came about just by accident. Right? All that took time. It took effort. You had to give up other things in order to spend time with them. Right? And you had to work through all the difficulties in your miscommunications that came. Well, that's the same way it is with our relationship with God, right? And, and then some. Because he already knows us more intimately than any spouse or any friend ever could. And he's proven his love through his willingness to die on the cross for you, even if you don't feel lovable. So take the time and make the effort to respond to him, and you'll be rewarded with a relationship much more wonderful than you can ever imagine. Right? But you have to value the privilege of prayer to do it. You have to cherish time with him and to make it a priority. Donald Whitney's book called Disciplines, uh, Spiritual Disciplines for Christian Life is helpful and encouraging. Listen to this. He says, When our awareness of the greatness of God and the gospel is dim, then our prayer lives will be small. The less we think of the nature and the character of God, and the less that we are reminded of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, then the less we want to pray. But instead, we should think of what Christ has saved us from, right? When we recall the shame that he endured so willingly for our sake, when we remember all that salvation means, then prayer is not hard. And so what a privilege we've been given as believers Right, as adopted children of the creator of the universe, to have him watching over us, to have his words spoken to us, and to be able to respond to him, to communicate with him as our loving heavenly father. So may we respond to these glorious truths by being resolved to pray more, right? that we will plan to pray, that we will read our Bibles and pray, and that we'll strive to cherish our time with God in prayer. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, what a privilege we have to address you as Father. Lord, to have unfettered access to you in our prayer. 
Lord, just to be able to open up our hearts before you and to know that you hear us, to know that you love us and that you're working for us, Lord. So we just ask that you would give us humble hearts, Lord, or that we would acknowledge that we are often selfish, that we're, we're prideful, Lord, that we don't take advantage of this privilege of prayer enough. Lord, ultimately that we don't prioritize our relationship with you enough. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would give us all a renewed resolve to cherish this gift, Lord. Lord, and that we would plan to pray more often, Lord. That you would give us a resolve to invest in our relationship with you, Lord. That we would read our Bibles and that we would pray. Lord, I ask that you do that good work in us, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.